All right. Welcome back. For those of you uh, that have been following the podcast, I appreciate your support. Uh, it's been really cool to see people interact with Twitter. So I've been really excited uh, to see the support throughout the coaching community. We have another great guest today in Lakeville South head coach, uh, Joe Jancourt. So coach, how are we doing? Fantastic. How are you, Brett? I'm well, thank you. Uh, as you know, I know you mentioned, or you claim, I will maybe I'll have to test your knowledge, but you claim you've listened to a few of these other ones. You know that our first question is uh, your coaching Wikipedia page. Now, I asked this to Damian Johnson, and the dude actually has a Wikipedia page, so it's a little bit different. Uh, but what's your Wiki coaching Wikipedia page? Where'd you play? Where have you coached? And what led you to Lakeville South? Yeah, uh, so starting out, um, I'm a Northeast Wisconsin guy. So born and raised in Marinette, Wisconsin, just north of Green Bay, about 50 minutes. So uh, grew up with season tickets in Lambeau Field. So, you know, a lot of listeners right now, you know, you had Fadness on here, you had Omar on here. So a couple Packer guys, so which is fantastic. If we can get any more Packer blood in here, we call us transplants. And, you know, I still, I don't like to think I'm vacationing here anymore. I think I'm a pride and true Minnesotan now though. So um, I've loved living here. Uh, the University of Minnesota kind of brought me here around 2000 and, um, you know, during that time, I started out at the U of M and I was going into broadcast journalism right away off the get go and had aspirations of being on ESPN and being a sports center journalist, uh, broadcaster. And something kind of caught me early on in the going through my degree was what am I doing for people? And, you know, I didn't have the money, didn't have the cost, the means to become a doctor at any point. So I thought the next best thing would be to be a teacher. And so with the teacher, the benefits are you get some little bit more opportunities to give back and to work within the community and to hopefully get an opportunity to someday fulfill a dream of being a high school basketball coach. Um, I had been, it's been a, uh, the privilege of having two uh, relatives who were high school coaches, my aunt Judy Jankort, Stevens Point. Um, she coached the 1981 SPASH team to a state championship. It actually had Kathy Bennett on the team. Uh, Dick Bennett's daughter, uh, my uncle Satch, Ron Satch, England of Marinette Catholic Central, who's a longtime uh, WISA state champ from the girls' side, uh, also a football coach over at the Menominee Maroons, running the single wing. Um, and so I kind of had a chance as a young kid to look and to see how they modeled and did ran their programs. Um, and it kind of caught me. Like I spent a lot of time in the gym, and it was an opportunity for me to say, hey, if I'm going to teach, Hopefully, I'm going to get a chance to maybe give back. Um, so around 2000, 2001, I'm in school. Uh, I started to get a job at um, at the Target Center in, in the guest services department. So I'm working at Target Center in the guest services department. Then I get a job at the Minnesota Twins in their guest services department, having the team lead lots of people and so forth. Again, so, so people opportunities coming along my way. Um, and then in 2004, I took a coaching basketball class with Brian Fry. And Brian was um, coach of Burnsville at the time, um, Burnsville girls. He was transitioning in around De La Salle, I want to say at the time as well. And I had a chance to be in there with uh, the governor, I'm sorry, the mayor of St. Paul and Matt McGuire, uh, Alex Spokey and Kevin Mertens. And so I uh, didn't really know those guys all too well, but uh, Alex Spokey and I ended up getting a junior Wolves internship with the Minnesota Timberwolves, working for Kevin Wilson and, and uh, Todd Landrum at the time. So this is around the 2004 window. And uh, at that point too, so we're doing all the before 
tour of the game stuff and running camps and getting some opportunities. And um, then an opportunity came along as I'm working for the Minnesota Twins. Um, we have an opportunity that comes with a um, one of our um, one of the ushers was like, "Hey, do you want to give aspirations of coaching?" And I said, "Absolutely." Um, because we've always had conversations about me wanting to be a coach someday and um, me being a teacher. So uh, an opportunity came along. Um, Henry Sibley was looking for a position. Um, they were looking to fill their freshman position. And Coach Tom Dastovich over there. So 2005, um, I ended up coaching the freshman team at Henry Sibley um, and helping out a little bit with the varsity. Uh, you know, Trevor Mbakwe is walking in the gym, Pete Leslie. Um, we had a crew of Francis Bunju, Mo Hernandez. Um, we can go on with some of our freshman crew. A lot of those kids were playing up too, and Chris Halverson. Um, and so 2005, I'm coaching freshman basketball at Henry Sibley. Um, and at the end of the year, uh, I ended up connecting back with Alex Fokey, and we're coaching 43 hoops with Chris Carr and getting some opportunities to go down to Texas and uh, being part of the Kingwood Classic. and you know, seeing all these guys around the country, and this is in 2006 now at this point, and um, you're like, whoa, what is going on with AAU? Like, this is a big deal. Like, we didn't really know anything about this, what we were getting into 2006. Um, and then, the, so the next year, we transitioned into, um, Dasovich asked me to be part of the varsity staff and coaching junior varsity at varsity. So that following year, I'm coaching JV, Henry Sibley, then the two following years, I was able to be just on the varsity assistant side of things at Henry Sibley. Um, and that was kind of a crazy year. Um, some of the talent we had going through there uh, really made us coaches look really darn good. And getting to coach alongside Coach Dasovich, Larnell James, Alex Fokey. Uh, we can't put, uh, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say Ryan James in there as well. Um, and working with his beautiful presence every single day, especially <laughs> really strong. Um, so got around all these guys and we're a bunch of gym rats and a bunch of junkies that just wanted to be in the gym and all our guys at Henry Sibley just absolutely wanted to be in the gym. The success and Dasovich would even admit to it that a lot of our success was built to our open gyms and how competitive they were on a daily basis. I mean, you want to talk about, um, like Pete Leslie, Noah Kaiser, Mike Bruschewitz, Chris Halverson, Mo Hernandez, Jay Cruiser, um, Kayvon Martin. The list goes on um, in, in terms of all those guys that just wanted to be in the gym. And, again, it made us coaches look really darn good. Um, so, you know, we go in that year, 17 wins, 21, 26, 27 wins. And you're feeling like, man, I got, I'm getting really spoiled as a young coach um, to be in this situation where I'm an assistant coach under a top team in the state. Um, and so – but – but then the reality is knowing that I've got a long ways to go as a coach. And so um, after um, the 09 season, I kind of got uh, Gerard Corey reached out to me from North St. Paul. And he said, Joe, you're teaching in North St. Paul. Why, why does it make sense that you're coaching over at Sibley? And I thought to him, absolutely 100%. And so I was able to jump on staff with Gerard um, in the 09, 010 season. Uh, at North St. Paul and really learned a lot about, you know, I, I think that was one of the best things I did as a coach was to be able to see it from a different lens 
um, and to see how things, how he operated and how he did things, especially from the defensive side, offensively, his movements and his actions. There's still some of the things that we do today. So I was super, you know, fortunate to work under Gerard for a couple of years, three years. And then, um, and then after Gerard moved on and um, I got that opportunity at North St. Paul. Um, and so we coached there for five years as the head coach. Um, one of the coolest moments, you know, you think about having kids, the kids being the highlights of your life, uh, getting that opportunity to be the head coach of a program was like, I mean, between getting a, a you know, the kids and getting in a, a teaching position, um, the high school position, basketball position was absolutely um, an incredible opportunity. So five years at North St. Paul, we go our first year, three wins, and then, um, you know, we go three, I think it's like three, 10, six, 24 wins, and then like 17. So, you know, we, we started out and pretty slow and had to kind of build our foundation. And we got that thing going um, and making a state tournament run was fantastic. And, you know, you had Mark Klingsborn on here and you think about getting the opportunity to go against him in a section final. Um, what we split during the season was an, it was an incredible moment for our kids. Um, really cool and something I hope they'll hang on to for a long time. Bunch of gym rats. Um, and then an opportunity came along in Lakeville South. And so just finished up my third year at Lakeville South. Um, and uh, we had an opportunity this past year to play uh, for a state tournament. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we find out by John Malaya from the State High School League on Twitter before anybody and you start getting texts. And if you listen to the Bears Den and Jeff Flom, uh, with Flom, um, Dave Flom, sorry, not Jeff Flom, that was an old co-worker from the Minnesota <laughs> Twins. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he talked about how gutting it was and him being an elementary teacher, me being an elementary teacher, how we just sat at our desk. I, was, I found out during my prep time and how devastated I was and crushed, um, cried for a long time, matter of fact. That was actually my, uh, one of my next questions I want to talk about. Uh, I, you know, I mentioned this when I talked to Fadness because they were in the same situation that you worked that hard and to not have that closure of having the section final. I mean, for us, it was a bummer. We had won our section the night before where I'm over at the high school, get in our activities office, getting all of our, uh, getting all of our information ready for get our rosters and stats and get our seed and stuff ready. And then boom, tweet comes in. And for about a couple hours, it was like kids were coming in and out of there crying and sad and the way I, the silver line, I was like, well, at least we had our section final. So I can't even imagine, you know, being a coach who's, you know, you've put in your three years at Lakeville South, number one C 21 wins. And then to have that, not be able to have that closure, that section final game. And so how did you, you mentioned how you processed it as a coach. Uh, it was emotional for you. And you mentioned that it brought you to tears and you just kind of sat there and were devastated, but how did you address it with your kids? And how did you use that as a bigger life lesson? you don't really know what to do next and it's lots of question marks and I had to step out of the classroom. Um, and I had a heck of a team and teaching elementary school is, is a little bit unique in that you don't, you're not there every day. And that's one of the tough parts of being an elementary teacher and coaching high school basketball. Um, but quite often fourth graders have the same needs that 12th graders needs. And it's, you know, as Quinn Studer says, it's, do you love me? Can you teach? Those don't lie. You know, do you love me? Can you teach? Can, can transfer. Um, I stepped out for a while and tried to figure out a plan for what was going to happen. And it was, you know, get to the high school, let's meet, let's talk um, right after school. 
and uh, was able to accommodate with my teammates to get their uh, my fourth my class teachers I teach with uh, to be able to get there right away after school and to meet with our kids um, and just to explain to them kind of just reflect a little bit on the season and how far we've came and to not you know so, something that nobody can take from us um, and having not been in that position since 2011 especially the high school and you know and especially our seniors who put in everything and you know everybody's talking right now about how we honor and look back at everything that the seniors have given us that's a that's a big part of it because they're not going to get that opportunity again um but we went we took some pictures um we talked a little bit and then just kind of left it at that uh we didn't uh cut down the nets like flom did um even though they went 28 no um but we did cherish and discuss a little bit and just talked i mean just kept it real that's a huge role that we have as high school coaches, right? Is that, yeah, we're a coach, we want to win games, but also being that big picture, uh, helping them understand the big picture and, you know, just reflecting and learning. And it's tough, man. I, I, I can't imagine uh, having to deal with that. Like I said, you had, you know, made it there with North St. Paul and then wanting to get back, had the potential to get back to Lakeville South. But we'll transition a little bit more into the X's and O's here. Uh, I don't want to hit at too many of the uh, emotions. I'm sure it still stings. It still stings me when I think about it. Uh, not being able to have that chance to play in the state tournament. Uh, so I imagine it's probably even worse for you not having a section final. So let's talk defense. Uh, as we texted beforehand, you mentioned that uh, as humble as you are, as much as you admittedly don't like to pump yourself up, you know, you're, I've heard from other coaches that you're a really good defensive coach. You mentioned that that's your strength. So we're going to go into that uh, earlier or last Thursday, actually, Josh Ortman from Buffalo and I talked a lot about offense. So we'll make this a little bit more defensive focus today. And so, again, you play in a really talented conference, a lot of Division I players, top-ranked, um, top-10 teams in Class 4A in your conference. I think all seven of your losses, right, were in conference play. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. And so what are some uh, strategies that you have? And we'll start with ball screen defense. So what are some strategies or what are your different coverages that you use when defending ball screens? So, um, you know, defending ball screens is we like to um, – you know, there's a lot of ways and I have, you know, I have some Wisconsin blood and unfortunately if, uh, you know, Bo Ryan and Gardo and how they defend ball screens is they don't really change how they defend ball screens. They really chase over the top of things and, and then, and, and bump off from the backside. But, you know, we, we like to, I like to consider us like a hybrid, um, you know, defense, especially, I don't like to say that we're hundred percent gap or hundred percent on the line up the line. I don't think we're in that era anymore. And, you know, from a ball screen standpoint, we're really, really, really personnel driven in terms of who we're playing. And that basically comes down to our scout um, in terms of how we want, do we want to get the ball to the, the uh, offensive player? Do we want to push them away from the basket? Do you think there's some vulnerabilities among some of our players that we're going against? Um, do we want to be able, do we think they can't shoot? So are we going to go on one under? Are we going to go two under? Um, and then, so that, a lot of that came from Gerard Corey too, and talking a little bit about how he would defend ball screens. Again, we talk about one under two under, are we hard hedging? Are we trapping? Are we pushing them away? Um, you know, we're, we're not like Edina and how Joe defends and icing a lot of things. Um, you know, so I think I don't like to say like we do things one way. Heck, I mean, last year too, we played a lot of three, two. And we played a lot of Chad Fikema 3-2 defense, a lot of zone, too. Um, 
And so we, we I, I, like I said, I like to consider us like a hybrid defense. Um, and we want to just, it's basically played off of the offensive player. You know, sometimes we have to play Farmington. They run some of their continuity offense. You've got to be able to work on that quite often. And, you know, they've changed up a little bit of how they do things, but it's not really one concrete answer, but um, we've had success in defending ball screens because, you know, um, the thing about it is we're in a copycat league right now where with so many opportunities and resources that are in front of us, we can take and find information. You'd be surprised that when we watch huddle, we share within our league film is how many teams are running some of the same things and the same plays and the same actions um, even now. So uh, again, it just comes down to personnel. So you guys, you mentioned film exchange. Our league has film exchange too, which is really, it's a wife saver, right? As a coach, my wife has never been happier than when we have film exchange. We don't have to go out on the road two or three nights a week. I don't know if you still get out on the road and scout. So what are some things you're looking at when you watch an opponent's film that's going to adjust your decision or help solidify your decision on how you're guarding them uh, off of ball screens? Well, first and foremost, I mean, in terms of it saved my marriage. Yep. Huddle has absolutely saved my marriage. Um, Somebody talked about what is the one word that you do as a high school coach and it's sacrifice. Sacrifice, and I would say balance. Having two kids at home, my wife works with the Timberwolves, and it is incredibly difficult, you know, to balance everything. And, like, we do it to a fault. I see Kyle Brown put his blog together the other day and talked about how you take all this information. Johnny Ted Carey would probably say the same thing. You take all this information out and you try to dissect it into pinpoint exactly what you want to do and like uh it's it's super super difficult um and and so like with huddle film share has been almost you know brett i will tell you this though uh it's gotten to the point where i'm exhausted watching film you know and you talk about i remember bryce tesdall was talking about watching eastview uh, 22 times before they played in the state tournament. <laughs> I heard that um, clip too. And then at the end of the day, I'm talking to Mike Keating from St. Thomas, and they're talking about how Johnny Tower watched it for 15 minutes. They watched 15 minutes of film. And so all we want is to process. We know so much about another team that we can all, we have to dissect it down to bare at the max 15 minutes. And so that's really difficult. Um, but finding what are the common trends in terms of what the teams are doing it's been it's been beneficial uh but almost to like i you know sometimes you're watching lakeville north over and over and over again you're seeing the same 30 actions that ox is running or you have to watch eastview run their uh 100 sets it, it, it can be nauseating and you're you're selective and you basically at the end of the day you're looking at actions what specific action are they three to five actions every game and hopefully you can solidify that in your breakdown each day in practice. So we'll wrap up ball screen defense here. Last question on that. Uh, you talked about blitzing and you talked about uh, hard hedge or one under two under what is, what are the other three guys doing? So who in a perfect situation, who's taking the role guy in your guys' ball screen coverage? Uh, it depends. I mean, it depends what are the threats typically, and it's based on spacing. If it's whether one or two away, is it that guy that's two away? Is he tagging low and transitioning out? And then what happens with our closeouts when we have those guys in those certain scenarios? Um, so, again, it just comes down to – and we'll do it differently every single time. I, I'm not going to say, like, you know, those are things that we do practice in the summer as well, too. Uh, we try to balance on our workouts. So, I, Brett, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's one way or the other because I'd be lying to you. 
So <laughs> fair enough. Off ball screens. Uh, specifically, how are you defending staggered screens? Yeah, staggered. We um, we go. So we like to go um, over the first action. We go. We go under the first, the second. Sorry, the first screen, and we go over. And then we're you know a screener. We teach our guys. If our guys a screener, we're a helper. Um, and if a guy's a cutter, it's a cutter. We don't like to have, you know, there are nervous cutters out there, Brett, like, as you like to say, <laughs> but, uh, we like to take care of our cutters as they are, but we like to go over. And then sometimes we can switch that second one depending, but unless you know, if we got a six, nine, 270 pound kid, like a Raleigh moment in there, um, we don't always want them matched up on, you know, uh, uh, Elamine out there, you know, running around. So, um, Sometimes we'll do that too, is we'll switch the second. But again, we like to go under the first and we like to chase over it. Like we'd like to do with a lot of off the ball screens too. And it's personnel based. So we teach a lot of off the ball stuff as well. And, you know, uh, listen to some other guys into here. We work pretty much in the summer and we work a lot of our fundamentals in our first probably, oh, 20 minutes of practice and teaching what do we do on down screens? What do we do on flare screens? What do we do on certain actions? How much do you guys switch? Um, you know, typically again, having a moment in there, six, nine, 280 pound kid, we can switch sometimes one through four and kind of keeping him, even though he can cover a ton of ground. Um, we can switch one through four. If we're guard heavy, sometimes one through five, mm -hmm. but it and does take some practice and it does take a lot of communication. How do you, and I could ask this question to 20 coaches and I'd probably get 20 different answers from the guys who are going straight five on five and stopping from the guys that are break down screen two on O, then go three on O and a four on O. So how do you teach if it's ball screens, off ball screens? What's your dread? I mean, it's, it's going to be multiple ways. I'm sure it's not one size fits all for you, but what are the ways that you're generally speaking, teaching defending screens? Um, we do a lot of it in shell. I mean, you know, I think we build up and we'll scaffold it sometimes when we're picking a lot of three on three groups. Sometimes it's nice having 18 and you can have, uh, you know, you can have three on three on three on one court, or you can have uh, three on three on three on another court. Um, and so just working those specific actions and lots of small sided games. And then we like to transfer it into some shell, uh, but we do play shell and we play it live based off of the actions that we just worked on in our breakdown um, early in the season. If, We'll, we will walk through a few things um, and, and play some dummy D or some dummy action, I guess, offensively with it. Um, and then I guess that maybe I've gone away with that a little bit more. We've gotten away from that where we go a little bit more live and small-sided, and then we'll transfer it to what does it look like when we had one more guy? Do we need to put it in our fifth in terms of do we need to put it in our post? And is he the only guy that's coming out in ball screening? So typically with our bigs and so forth too. So, again, it's small-sided. And then we transfer it into our shell. Post defense, the game is changing. Uh, post defense really in 2020 might just be how are you guarding the roll guy with that's what, you know, a lot of people are running some variation of its continuity ball screen, if it's spread ball screen, uh, or if just a big, maybe in the dunker spot. Well, how do you teach post defense and how much time now do you spend maybe this year versus what you would have done when you were an assistant uh, with uh, Henry Sibley or with uh, North St. Paul? Well, you know, that's a thing. Uh, Henry Sibley, we had Jay Cruiser, seven feet. Uh, Mike Brusiewicz was six, eight, six, nine. Chris Halverson, six, eight, six, nine. You throw in a dancing bear and a Marcus Garcia. You throw in, um, boy, I'm trying to think of the other guys. But then he transferred like to North St. Paul and he got like a Jake Weber 
he's our biggest guy at 6'6", and you're going against uh, a Javon Walker and a Jarvis Omerza. You've got there's you got to defend it. And a lot of times what we were doing is we were three-quartering a lot of it, and we were jumping back and filling up and pressing up as much as we can and walling up. Um, and then we teach that with our guards as well too. And then you transfer into North St. Paul, or I'm sorry, into Lakeville South, and you've got, we got some post presence now, you know, and uh, a lot of times you can just sit behind a guy and just say, good luck. <laughs> um, and that's really tough. It's really fascinating to talk about, you know, post as it is anyways. Like we are one of the rare, true kind of four out one in teams around because we have a true throwback post who can score in the pinch and he can score on the block too. So we've got some versatility in how, how we score offensively as well. But um, uh, a lot of times it's three quarter. And then a lot of times too, it's like, all right, you got a Steven crawl and he's Steven. If you're a junior, is he only going left shoulder? And then you see him at, you watch him in the film and you see his ability to score in both directions you've got to be creative about how you're forcing him one way to his offhand. And that's a Mark Klingsporn. Mark Klingsporn talked incredibly about it. You listen to his scouts and how much a guy scouts. Boy, he don't like film share very much. Mark will admit to that. He, he loves to give you on the grind still to this day. And he knows that if you play in that section, you're going to be scouted probably 10 times a year. Um, but they talk about left shoulder, right shoulder constantly. That's something I took from him and Coach Corey, too. What shot are you looking to take away? If you take away one shot, obviously, I mean breakaway layups, right? I mean, what, but getting a little bit more within a half-court set, what are you looking to take away, and then what are you looking to concede or are willing to concede, I should say? Yeah, I, you know, this is – I think what a lot of people would say is we're trying to give them that tough mid-range shot. And we want to we, – we think we defended the arc pretty well this year. I think we gave up – I think it was like 30% from three-point three line this year, uh, which is pretty good. Um, and, you know, we're trying to make, you know, we're not the bad boys by any stretch of the imagination, but we want to make tough contested twos by any means um, as much as we possibly can. Ball side corner. Uh, the philosophy in that is changing. You know, I heard uh, Jacobson from you and I uh, – when I first took over down in Omaha, so about seven or eight years ago, I went down to Nike clinic there. The first guy ever, I, I really heard, maybe I was behind in that, talking about not helping off a ball side corner. Uh, what is your guys' philosophy in that? Are you staying home? Are you stunting? Or are, are you willing to help on ball side corner off of penetration? Personnel-based. Personnel-based, 100%. And what's happening with that ball? Who's got the ball? Uh, is, he going, is he going to his left? What have we seen in film? We can watch that action 22 times and see what he does. Can he score off going to his left? And I think that's the craziest thing right now is kids can't finish with their left hand. So a lot of times when it's on the left side, if slot to corner, you know, we might just have him slide and stay on his hip the entire time and just take that corner away. Um, and a lot of, you know, I think it, Brett, I think in some of your podcasts too, the, a lot of guys love that corner three. So you know, it's the easiest shot in the game, supposedly. I'm not too much of an analytics guy, but maybe it is. Uh, and I'd be, I'd be curious to know more information about it. Um, but, again, it's personnel-based. Um, and I've seen oh, – I've watched a lot of film and even, like, how Novak does it in terms of veering, you know, veering guys down and bringing a big over. You know, if you got Chet Holmgren down there, you can bring him over great. 
But then what happens with the dump off guy? What happens with the guy two behind too? That's in the trail. And that's easy to pivot out of that um, and to move the basketball. Good teams. So personnel based 100%. I'm going to lose my assistants here. And hopefully I keep them coaching with me, but I think they might tune out after I ask this question. We are an anti-zone <laughs> defense in Princeton. We are man. We press. Uh, just kind of what we've done. We, uh, we haven't ran zone probably since maybe my first year, and I was just throwing whatever against the wall to see what would stick, and we'd run, run with it. Uh, so talk about your 3-2 zone. I'd be remiss. You brought it up. We haven't talked zone on, I think, 15 other episodes. So talk to me about your zone defense with your 3-2, uh, what, what some of the roles are and some of the responsibilities that you have. I should say, we talked with Fadness at Austin with his zone. Um, but what are some of the responsibilities that you have or your um, rules that you have with your guys in your 3-2? Well, you know, they're never going to name a gym after me or a court like Fadness, and I know how much he hates that too. <laughs> but anyways, uh, the 3-2, we ran a ton of it last year, and we like to call it our dirty zone because it's really tricky and it puts guys in position. And a lot of times, and you look at it and you look at teams, is a lot of teams have one to two kids that aren't really good at shooting the basketball, so you don't even need to guard them. Um or if they're in a position where they're not going to score, like that's great on us. Um, so you can always be a little bit late. And I don't like to think we played a ton of the zone this year. This was more exclusive last year and really selective based off personnel. Again, everything is personnel driven, but we would kind of take our uh, two posts and we try to set those guys out the corners. Sometimes it's really tougher, and uh, but we like to balance it out and into a two, three. Um, so our 3-2 transition to 2-3 in corner. Um, when the ball's in the middle, we kind of think about who is our nearest post that can step to him. Um, and then we drop off, our wings drop to the corners. Um, so basically what we're doing is we're creating as much length as we possibly can, filling in gaps, playing a little more gap-oriented as well, um, and allowing a kid to shoot that we think that can't shoot. That's the gist of it without boring anybody. Are you part of the McDonald family? And we don't know about it because Cambridge, we play twice a year, runs their matchup zone. Hibbing runs a lot of one, two, two uh, in our section. Are you sure deep down you're not, you don't have a little McDonald in you? No, I'm not. You know, I mean, <laughs> and all those guys, I mean, it is unbelievable. I'm not half as good looking as those guys, nor um, think I'd ever be. So, um, it's funny too because our league our league don't run a lot of zone at all i mean it's crazy to think about it and it's funny uh listening to tower talk they don't get zoned at all either and they spend time on it you know and you guys trying to score 100 points a game um that is there a reason you don't want to go zone brett ever i don't I, we don't go zone we don't want a team i mean really i just don't want a team. i want to be good at one thing defensively uh, and it does, right. I mean, to play us for, no, I got, you know, I know coach Fenske and Hermantown always listens to the podcast. I used to accuse, <laughs> actually, the, he was the uh, girls coach at Princeton. He actually officiated my wedding and we you know played them in the section final this past year. And he listens to the podcast every time he walks his kid, uh, uh there. So I'm sure he's going to, maybe he's me instituting. So I know he's not his own guy either, but, uh, you know, yeah, obviously without a shot clock, we want to keep teams sped up. Uh, we think zone just gives teams an opportunity that they could could hold it against us. And, you know, our offense, our defense is based off of offense and we're willing to give up philosophically. Uh, we're, we're willing to give up a couple open layups to keep the game moving. We tell our guys a lot of the times don't fall, like don't contest late. Like look, 
that's fine. We want to keep the game moving. Where we get into trouble is where, you know, teams, you know, are able to slow us down by running the zone on their end. They're able to get back on defense, but when we start following kit teams. And so mm-hmm. kind of that's more of the same philosophy is we don't want to run zone, um, A, because I'm not, I wouldn't be very good at teaching it. You know, I'm just a man guy for my skill set. But also mm-hmm. we just want to kind of keep the game moving. We think, yeah, we're, we might get beat off the dribble because we got some guys who maybe aren't as good off the bounce, but we want to keep the game moving. We don't want guys to be able to, um, you know, pass it around the perimeter. And we want to kind of speed teams up and force that tempo and force that pace to 80 possession game or so each way. So yeah, without cheering too much. Um, and we get zoned. I mean, we get zoned a little bit. Like I said, Cambridge runs a really good matchup zone. Bill Bauman, who's at North branch forever, the assistant coach. I know he's done uh, this past year was his last year assisting there kind of instituted that. And they got really good at that. Uh, Hibbing runs a good one, two, two, uh, and then we saw Austin in the state tournament. I told Chris this. It was like, wow, I don't know anything about basketball with how his defense was so good. And so if you can run a good zone, man, it's really hard to, it's really hard to score against. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, mean, I don't, you know, we don't, I don't sit there and, you know, put my nose in the air at anyone running zone. I mean, I think that if you're good at it, I mean, it can be really tough. Um, Jim Beheim's had a ton of success, obviously at Syracuse winning national championship with it. So um, just for me, like I said, it, it comes down to our tempo. Uh, we're willing to give up an open layup uh, here or there, right? We don't mm-hmm. want us Olay guys to the rim every single possession. And it looked like that my first few years. Uh, but, you know, recently it's, you know, if we, the kid gets an open layup, that's fine. Just like, let's keep the game moving. So we, yeah, we, that's, just uh, to, we just want to use it right as a diversion more or less and yeah. to change up the game. If there's something we can change the dichotomy of the game, if, you know, I think we were fourth and four a in terms of points given up. And a lot of people say, like, I remember talking vividly to, um, I think it was the Owatonna news guy talking about looking at our points scored versus points given up. And it really looks like we're holding the basketball because I think we've gave up like there were 20, don't quote me on this, but I think 18 to 20 teams that we held under 50 points this year. And it wasn't that we were holding the ball or long possessions. And are we predicated on ball movement offensively and paint touches and absolutely offensively. And like you said, it's, it's a result of, our defense is a result of how well we move the ball offensively. Absolutely, 100%. But um, also, we have to think about our personnel, too, in terms of who, who we have. Can we run or do we need to play a little bit more? And I think it's important to know that I always – I come from the mindset that to really win in March, you got to play half-court offense and you got to defend in the half-court because uh, teams are too good. Just a quick scan here. Yeah, I think you guys are fourth. I see Tartan at 51.5, Irondale's in there at 55.3, Eastridge 54.2, and then, yeah, you guys at 55.6 in Class 4A. So, yeah, it's uh, clearly you're good at it. When I've, when I've reached out to various coaches, like, hey, who should I have on offense? Who should I have on defense? Uh, more than one person said, got to get you on. I had to have Klingspart on for defense. And so, obviously, you know what you're doing on the defensive end. Uh, that's a lot of defensive talk, and especially for yeah. a guy like me who's more of an offensive guy. Like, and we're, we're trying to score, you know, 85 points a game. And I know Minnehaha, way, way, way more talented than us. But we still led Class 3A in points per game. Obviously, I know our competition is a little bit different. But you can't take away that we led Class 3A in points per game. So, with no state tournament, I think that puts us at the top. We scored more points than – uh, everyone else. But let's talk program building. I know that's something you've done uh, a really good job of. And so just talk about when you take over a program, what some of your first steps are and what you're looking to achieve maybe in that first month or two. Sure. So teaching elementary school in North St. Paul, I was able to work with a few of the kids already. Um, I had been, you know, I, I, I taught Good News Capagos since he was in first grade 
in uh, North St. Paul. And to have him at the high school was an absolute joy. And to think about getting to know family members and so forth. And um, to be, you know, just immersed within the community as well. Um, when that program took off, you know, we, we developed, it's, it's a hundred percent relationships really is what it is. Um, I had the privilege of being, you know, an assistant for three years. So, you know, between elementary teaching in the district and having already got to know the kids, you know, um, and being what everybody at that point is, you know, the best person in the world, like coach Klingsborn would say is the assistant coach. Everybody loves you. Um, so you develop strong relationships. I think it's important that you don't, you keep that same mindset, even as the head coach, you know, I think a lot of times in interviews, are we going to, even at the elementary school level or a middle school, high school is what is your relationship with your kids? And do you want to get to the point where you're best friends and buddy, buddy, I think it's a point where it's, um, you know, if I'm going to bring you down, I'm going to pick you back up really quickly and we make you feel like a million bucks. Um, and sometimes as you get older and you get more cynical, sometimes you like, you know, don't ever, you got to just keep reminding yourself not to lose the love and the passion for having fun. Brian Schnettler, I talked to him the other day and it was just like, don't ever lose sight of having fun. And we were talking to a bunch of guys who had been around the programs for, let's say, roughly 15 years. And just because we've, we've immersed ourselves with so much, there's so much out there, social media wise. And, you know, we talked about Kyle Brown and we talked about John Kerry, how much has been immersed and around there. You know, building a program needs to be fun. And you talk about our kids at Lakeville South this year. Um, something that's been a joy is, Every single kid has a nickname that has been brought forth by each other. Um, you know, and that's something that's, that's part of the, it, it's a huge culture piece. It's relationships. It's putting expectations within the program as well, too, about what we can do. It's not rules. It's not mandates. But these are things that we should Im embed in terms of what we do on a daily basis. And at the end of the day, the biggest thing is consistency. Um, when you've got turnover and constant turnover within coaching staffs, it can be difficult. Um, and can it take a little bit of time to get there? And we always need to remind ourselves of having a little bit of patience too in stepping back. I think. The last been, thing, oh, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Oh, I would just say, you know, it's just finding that balance, finding the balance between what you do at home, how you teach and how you coach. What are some strategies that you use with your program and building relationships, uh, especially coming from, you know, go, coming from North St. Paul to Lakeville South, you didn't get to maybe see all those kids come up through the youth basketball association. So you've been there now for three years. So what are some strategies that you've used to build those relationships uh, with your uh, student athletes? Don't teach elementary school is number one. All right. Don't <laughs> teach elementary school on a late release. So uh, I teach on the North side of Lakeville and um, boy, my three years there were teaching fourth grade were, absolutely incredible it's really painstaking to walk into the gym about 4 10 every single day and to know like all right and i've got you know there are tremendous relationships that i have with troy surgeon and dan Colseth and the rest of our staff at south but because they've gotten everything going we've been in the weight room already um we may or may not have watched film and giving them um even now in the three years and the trust that we have the relationship that we built with those two guys right now is we may have watched they may have watched film already and then we're hitting the court so don't teach elementary school where you got to get in there uh as late 
as, as time permits, um, teach middle school or be embedded in the high school. So making that transition next year. Um, you know, in film, we do a lot of, you know, we, we do a lot of talking, a lot of conversing. There's opportunities in the weight room to converse and to talk. Um, reaching out to the kids, we can text them and see how they're doing as much as we possibly can. Try to get out and go to their some of their AAU games as well. Um, and to know that, you know, we can't come to everyone, just like we can't come to every single youth organization that there is, um, whether it's tournament or everything else. And that's something that I ex I've explained to all our youth coaches is that, you know, when we have our coaches meeting in the fall, it's like, I can't come to everything. I'd love to come to one or two of your practices and hopefully like I can do that. But at the end of the day, let's have constant communication with the coaches throughout the year. Uh, I send some check-ins with the youth coaches to see how they're doing throughout the year. Um, no, I may or may not get back to you on things, uh, but how like every year through the process, uh, we improve something, whether that's giving, you know, whether it's improving what we do at our youth levels to what we need to improve at our high school levels. And I think when you first start, you should, your core should be your high school, your, your main group. And then how do you stretch yourself out with the sophomore group, the freshman group, and then how does your lower levels look? And I think you get those opportunities in the summer as well, uh, working in camps, doing workouts. Those are some really, really uh, some core time to really work with the youth. Good transition into uh, player and roster evaluation. I know I'm throwing this on you. We didn't talk about this beforehand, but you brought it up, and I think it's a good one that intrigues me at a school where we don't cut. Uh, we have 9A. We have some 9B games. We have, uh, depending on the year, 8 to 15 B or sophomore games, and we have a JV varsity. And so how do you evaluate your teams, and how do you make that? Because uh, I know you've had some young kids that have been really successful for you in your years uh, mm -hmm. at Lakeville South, and just from, from watching and following stats and box scores from afar. So how do you make that determination that a young player is ready for that big, for that big jump to the varsity level? Yeah, it's a million dollar question, isn't it? Um, I think you got to, we've got to figure out how are they going to fit? And we've got to, we've got to do a, uh, a heck of a job of anticipating how they're going to grow within our system and what's going to be the best for everybody involved. Um, sometimes we don't always make the best decision and you haven't seen the development like you'd like to. So, you know, hindsight's 2020. At that point, you're thinking, all right, this is going to work well going forward. And you have to look at some of the other moving pieces of the other kids as well and how they're going to fit into some of their um, some of their roles, I guess, you, if you want to call them. Um, it's doing your best based off of you looking at rosters. And a lot of times when you look at rosters, you can't just look at this specific year. You've got to do your best to anticipate how it's going to look down the line. But at the end of the day, kids change. Kids grow. You know, John Luer growth level. Um, you know, you just never know what's going to happen. So you've got to do your best. And you, at the end of the day, it's doing what's best for your program um, and hoping it works. Sometimes the best is to dealing with some of the kids who may have had those chances is giving them opportunities to deal with adversity. Um, adversity is something that we appreciate. And uh, it's something that I teach with my fourth graders every single day that it's, we, should, we should take challenges as opportunities every single day. And when there's adversity with some of our younger kids, um, it's opportunities for them. And then, you know, sometimes, you know, you've got to wait and see and see how they do and give kids opportunities. So if you have a, a, 
let's see how how successful they are at one level and maybe we can move them later in the year um sometimes that can present itself too i don't like to air so much on that side of things but so yeah. that that's a that, that, it's a million dollar question i mean we've all every coach has played a young kid up so do you have like a, a rough gray area maybe that's not a good way to phrase it but your line where it's like we'll move a kid up to varsity if they're seventh guy or better or a starter or better do you have that or does it just depend on the situation right I, we want our kids to play as much basketball as possible you know we have the ability to play three halves so if if we think that they're you know because so if we have a kid that thinks you know, if you have a number of guys um, that think they should play varsity, we want to give them opportunities on the JV level. If they're non-senior players, give them opportunity to the JV level and see how they continue to, we want them to kind of dominate in that area before we're giving them opportunities for varsity playing time. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really a gray area and we're not really black and white with it. And just like we're personalized learning for every kid in my fourth grade class, you know, we've got to make sometimes those difficult decisions at the high school to see if they're seven, eight, and nine, let's say, well, seven, eight, nine, you know, we think it's best that they play JV and we think it's best that they're playing B squad and then maybe getting opportunity at the high, at the varsity level. And sometimes we want to give those opportunities out. Uh, I was talking to a coach the other day about, he was talking about how um, he had some younger kids that he knew we're going to be better than some of the older kids. And he just never gave them shot because he was adamant that these older kids were just going to be fine through the whole year. Uh, we tried quite a bit this year at South and we were looking to fill kind of one position and giving multitude of guys opportunities. And, you know, uh, we learned a lot about that. And at the end of the day, we felt confident about our, what we did going forward and it made us a better team. Last question here, and don't get yourself in any hot water in Lakeville South, how you answer this. But, uh, you know, Lakeville's a very affluent uh, school district. Uh, you probably have a lot of parents in your community that are in the basketball community that are very successful, uh, probably a lot of six-figure salaries with, you know, if not you know, seven-figure salaries of people, uh, parents in your basketball program. So what are some of the positives and or the struggles and or the challenges, I should say, challenges and rewards or benefits of coaching in a district where it is affluent and you do have a lot of parents who uh, probably have, who have a high level of professional success. I think it's, you know, our parents are tremendous. Um, awesome. They're absolutely fantastic. I mean, in terms of wanting to help and support uh, we've got our, our parent support group, our booster club does a tremendous job in giving the kids opportunities. Um, we have quite a few, you know, for, I think we've got way more realistic parents than unrealistic um, and sometimes we've got to work, be able to work. And I think Nate Sanderson does an unbelievable job in talking about how we collaborate around working with parents. I mean, Nate knows way more about this than I do, but, and, and I think it's something that, you know, they want to know. Um, I mean, I think the parents, they want to know that, do you love my son? Do you support what he does? Um, can you bottom up and tell him you love him every single day? And, um, and can you give him opportunities for failure too? Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes they don't always, I guess, uh, parents don't always see everything. They don't, they don't get a chance to see what goes on in practice. They don't always get to see all the times we've conversed with the, with, uh, other kids through text, or we pick up the phone call and talk to them. And sometimes 
what parents only see is the games. And sometimes there's, there's knee-jerk reactions of how we responded to maybe a turnover or how we responded to when a kid came out of the game. Um, and it doesn't tell the whole picture. But I do think sometimes I'm, I'm pretty cognizant of how I present myself consciously, uh, which I don't know if that's like a great thing, Brett, or if it's something that I've just been, it's, it's a learned behavior over the years. Um, and, you know, if I'm high-fiving a kid coming off the bench, if I'm not high-fiving the kid, um, I think we're always under the microscope, whether it's Lakeville South parents or opposing coaches. Um, I'm sorry, opposing teams in terms of, you know, how we are viewed in everything that we do. How we, you know, my, one of my faults is a, I used to be a yeller when I first started growing up. Um, and I would just try to dictate as much as I could because I, I had no clue what I was doing. Like I would try to manage everything on the court. And as I've grown through the profession, you know, 15 years later, uh, I find myself just being a better, more analytical coach and managing the game and letting the kids go through opportunities for failure and success. Um, so that's, it's kind of it in a roundabout answer, a little bit relationships. That's really good stuff, coach. Uh, I know you, you said before we got on here, well, and I'm, I'm pretty humble. I don't really like talking to myself, but there's a lot of good information that coaches can take from this, that I uh, listened through this. Uh, I'm really appreciative that you came on. Uh, last thing I do just want to know, are you ready for the Jordan love era next year or are, do you got your Jersey wow. or where, where are you at with that? Wow. I want to see Omar. I wonder what Omar and fatness are smiling right now. If they're laughing, well, so he's supposed to, Roger's supposed to retire today. So you guys are going to hear this on Monday. Supposedly he's supposed to retire today, just so you guys know. Um, <laughs> and, and then we got the Jordan Love era. So, yeah. Um, well, I wasn't too happy in 2005 when Rodgers was drafted. And I uh, wasn't too happy now. So we'll let the rest just kind of play its cards. And uh, I know I know a lot less than Brian Goodenkiss. So uh, I'll, I'll shut my mouth and let it play out because I'm a Packers fan. I'm going to double down on this. How did you feel after the NFL draft? Because, right, there's no other sports. So, like, the NFL draft, which gets way too much coverage in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. Ten, I, ten I was, times more coverage than it normally is. How did you feel constantly seeing D and F grades throughout the week after the draft? How did that feel for your psyche and your um, fandom? Well, when I listened to about two weeks' worth of <laughs> podcasts related to the NFL draft, and all we were worried about was what wide receiver we were going to take and, and when we can move up to get Justin Jefferson and – well, thanks, thanks for doing that. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> draft grades, draft grades will figure the, figure themselves out in three years. So we'll see. Uh, if Matt Lafleur has his hand in this, I'm hoping it's going to work out. And I'm I'm pretty optimistic kind of guy that I am. So I'll I'll cast judgment in a few years. All right, coach. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, Brett. Thank you so much.